Let us pray. We thank you, almighty God, that you have built your church upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the head cornerstone. Grant that we may be joined together in unity of spirit by their doctrine, that we may be made a holy temple acceptable unto you. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Our sermon text is recorded in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Dear fellow redeemed, what things are essential for church life? In other words, what things are necessary for a church to be alive? Many people today measure the life of a church by the number of programs or social activities it has. Some argue that certain boards or committees need to be in place for church life to function properly. Others measure the life of the church by the number of members on its books or the number of people in the pews each Sunday. Our text today gets to the heart of church life, telling us what gives life to the church. Our text takes place immediately following the birth of the church on Pentecost Day. After the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the apostles preached the gospel in languages known by those who were in Jerusalem. Peter preached a powerful sermon centered on the Old Testament promises of the Messiah and their fulfillment in Christ. In response to the sermon, 3,000 people were baptized. What did these new church members do then? This is the question our text answers, giving us a glimpse into the life of the early church. In doing so, it focuses our attention on those things that are essential to the life of the church. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in the prayers. As we meditate on these words, as members of the church, we fervently pray, Lord, keep us steadfast. Lord, keep us steadfast in the apostles' teaching. We live in an era in which little value is placed on doctrine or teaching. Many people are looking for a church that offers programs for their children or a variety of social activities. In many churches today, the members do not know what their church teaches. Yet our text places highest value on teaching, giving it top priority as the most vital aspect of church life. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. This is not just any teaching, but the apostles' teaching. The apostles were eyewitnesses to Jesus, those chosen and sent by him. They also give us divinely inspired accounts of Jesus' birth, 
death, and resurrection in the New Testament. This is vitally important for our spiritual life, for this is the saving work of Jesus. How does this apostolic teaching come to us today? The apostles' teaching is preserved for our instruction and inspiration on the pages of the New Testament. Our church body strives to be a teaching church. The apostles' teaching is preserved by us in our sermons, Sunday school classes, confirmation instruction, and adult Bible class. The catechism outlines the basic teachings of the Bible in a way that is easily grasped and speaks to our deepest need. The Ten Commandments tell us how to live a God-pleasing life and show us where we have fallen short of God's holy will. The Creed presents the work of the triune God in creating us, redeeming us, and making us holy. The Lord's Prayer teaches us how to speak to God in response to his gifts. Baptism brings us the blessings of the cross, forgiveness, and eternal life to us personally. In the office of the keys, confession and absolution, our sins are declared forgiven. In the Lord's Supper, we are fed and nourished in our faith by partaking of Jesus' true body and blood. Today, the apostles' teaching is under attack. In our time, basic teachings of the Bible are denied. Most church bodies have thrown out the central doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture, that the Bible is without error and is God's word in its entirety. However, if we allow for the idea that there are errors in Scripture, what do we base our teaching and practice on? When the Bible is no longer considered our only source of teaching in the church and without error. Various church bodies are left to base their teachings on the spirit of the times and whatever the current trends are. In recent years, various church bodies have especially rejected God's word in its teaching of creation and the Bible's teaching in areas of sexuality celebrating and blessing what the Bible condemns as sinful and immoral. How about us? Are we zealous for the true doctrine and pure teaching? Or have we become complacent, thinking that as long as we are in a conservative synod, we can let our guard down? Are we so eager to keep the peace and blend in with those around us that we are afraid to speak up for God's truth. Remember that Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. As those brought to a knowledge of the truth by the Spirit's working through baptism in the word, let us continue to grow in the word. May the Holy Spirit guide us into all truth, as we pray, Lord, keep us steadfast in thy word. Agreement in the apostles' teaching 
is the basis for fellowship. What is meant by fellowship? We commonly use the fellowship to mean congregating over a cup of coffee and cookies and bars. So our congregation has a fellowship hall. But the Bible uses the word fellowship to mean sharing in the spiritual treasures of the church, the word and sacrament on the basis of oneness in our biblical beliefs and teaching. Our text uses the word fellowship in connection first with the apostles' teaching and secondly with the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper. What creates this fellowship, this oneness in teaching and sharing of communion? The Holy Spirit creates this fellowship as through hearing and reading God's word, he brings us to unity and faith, a shared devotion to the apostles' teaching. This unity is strengthened as through the word and sacrament. We are brought together as a body in the same faith in Christ and love toward one another. This communion with one another in union with Christ unites us more closely to one another than even our earthly family. How is this fellowship expressed? It is expressed as we worship together and carry out the Lord's work together. As Luke describes how the early Christians prayed for and with one another in Acts chapter 1, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. This fellowship is also expressed by sharing with those in need, such as those do, who do not have enough for the essentials of living. We read of the Christian congregation in Jerusalem. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. The members of the congregation shared the material gifts God had given them to serve God and help their neighbor. They did all of this out of love for the Lord and for their brothers and sisters in Christ. They devoted themselves to fellowship. God has also blessed us by providing for our needs. Jesus gave his very life to provide for our spiritual needs. He has told us greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. He also gave the command, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Let us then, as those for whom Christ gave his life, and as members of Christ's church, provide for each other's needs, and bear one another's burdens. There are opportunities to do this in our community, such as donating to the local food shelf and ways to provide for the needs of others around the world through support of missions. Fellowship finds its most intimate expression in the breaking of bread, the sacrament of Holy Communion. In the early church, this was an every Sunday celebration as we are told in Acts 20, on the first day of the week, the disciples came together to break bread. Acts 2 describes how 
breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. So also when we come to the table of the Lord, we are to do so with simplicity of heart, humbly acknowledging our sins, but also with gladness. In the Lord's Supper, we are not only reminded of Jesus' death, which paid for our sins, but we also receive the ransom price, which released us from the bondage of sin, the true body and blood of Christ. In response to God's service to us in the apostles' teaching and breaking of bread, we offer him thanks and praise in the prayers. Praying together is also an expression of our fellowship and devotion to the apostles' teaching. The Greek tells us they devoted themselves to the prayers. This indicates that there were set prayers from the beginning of the Christian church. Old Testament believers used the Psalms as their book of hymns and prayers. By the end of the second century, the early Christians had the basic outline of what has become our Sunday morning liturgy. The prayers not only means praying, but the entire service of worship. There are no New Testament laws dictating how we must worship as the church. Why then do we follow the prayers, the liturgy? What's so special about praying the liturgy? Is the liturgy just rote repetition and empty ritual? No. Within the framework of the liturgy, both God's law and gospel are presented. By the law, we are convicted of our sin and are led to despair of ourselves. By the gospel, we are forgiven our sins and brought to faith in Jesus Christ. In the liturgy, we have an ordered framework in which God teaches us his holy word. God washes us in holy baptism and God feeds us in the Lord's Supper. At the heart of the liturgy is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the sins of the world. In response to God's full and free forgiveness, we give him thanks and pray. What result did God produce as the disciples devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers? The disciples found favor with all the people. The Christian's way of life was a living witness and confession to those who lived around them. In our days, too, it ought to be possible for unbelievers to say of us, those Christians are helpful neighbors and good citizens. Our lives cannot make believers out of them, but the way we live might at least remove some obstacles to their believing. Our words and actions might convince someone that they ought to give the gospel a listen. We are also told the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Today, there are those who focus on growth in numbers and come up with clever ways to bring many people into the church. We too desire that new members be added to the church, souls that the Lord adds and records in his book of life, not only whose names are only on our books. God adds to the church by filling hearts with his gospel. It is God's work to add souls to the church. We Christians are to share the gospel with others 
and God will produce the results. Those who are being saved are those who are called to faith by the gospel. The church is not an organization that simply seeks members regardless of what they believe. It is the community of the saved, of believers in Jesus Christ. As we carry out the work of the church and live in congregations to which we are called, each of us serving with the talents God has given us, may we never lose sight of the things that are truly essential to the life of the church. May our fervent prayer be, Lord, keep us steadfast in the apostles' teaching and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and the prayers. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen.